In this episode of Cato Out Loud, an excerpt from Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, by Timothy Sandifer, published by the Cato Institute, narrated by Timothy Sandifer. Chapter 3, The Escape, 1835-1839 In January 1835, Douglass was rented out to William Freeland, who owned a run-down farm about three miles from St. Michael's. Freeland was a different kind of slave owner. He had a sense of honor, and although he could be temperamental, he was not cruel. This, however, only further stoked Douglas's desire to be free. Beat and cuff the slave, keep him hungry and spiritless, and he will follow the chain of his master like a dog, but give him a good master, and he wishes to become his own master. His Lazarus-like revival from the tomb of slavery started the seemingly inevitable progress toward liberation. He swore to himself that he would make a break for freedom within a year. And a few months later, he, along with Sandy Jenkins and four other slaves, fashioned a plan to sneak north on Chesapeake Bay in a canoe under the cover of night. At daybreak, they would take to the land and walk to Delaware. Douglas began forging passes for his companions. Enlisting the help of fellow slaves was a tremendous risk. Slaveholders spared no effort to keep slaves separate from and suspicious of one another to make it as hard as possible for them to unite against their oppressors. Slaves were under constant surveillance, and masters exercised an astonishing proficiency in detecting subtle clues about slaves' private thoughts. If one seemed distracted or unusually serious or betrayed the slightest hint of a mood out of the common way, the master's attention would be aroused. He might begin to ask questions, change the work schedule, move the slave from one place to another, or even beat him preemptively to elicit a confession. Of course, any slave caught seeking freedom was subject to savage punishment and would forever lose what little standing he might have in his owner's eyes. Masters rewarded those who revealed escape plots, and if a slave did escape, punished those who remained to ensure that they discouraged each other from any further attempts. With all these barriers in place, Running away had so little chance of success that it was virtually irrational to try. It was more often in the slave's interest to dissuade each other from an attempt or to betray their fellow's secrets. As the day set for the breakout drew near, Jenkins withdrew from the plot. The others held firm with Douglas's prodding. If they gave in, they were cowards, he told them, and deserved to be slaves. But as the tension mounted... Douglas had a weird premonition that the game was up. The morning of the planned escape, he turned to Jenkins and cried, Sandy, we are betrayed. Something has just told me so. Minutes later, an armed patrol galloped onto the plantation and arrested the plotters. While the officers were subduing one of the men, Douglas had time to burn his forged pass. The conspirators were dragged behind horses five miles to a jail in Easton, where all but Douglas were soon released. He remained alone in his cell for a week. His desolation once more became almost unbearable as slave traders came to shop, inspecting the inmates as possible purchases. 
When at last Thomas Auld arrived to retrieve him, he announced that he planned to sell Douglas south, generally considered the severest punishment that could be inflicted on an enslaved person. Yet Auld did not do this. Instead, he ordered the young man sent back to Baltimore to live once more with Hugh and Sophia. It is not clear why he changed his mind, but it was an act of comparative mercy. He had the power and the provocation to send me without reserve into the very Everglades of Florida, Douglas reflected, and his refusal to exercise that power must be set down to his credit. Indeed, it would prove to be Douglas's liberation. Hugh Auld put the now 17-year-old Douglas to work as an apprentice caulker, building ships at Fells Point. Biographer Dixon Preston discovered that the ships Douglas helped build were, ironically, slave transports. It was rough work. White laborers often struck him for disobedience or mistakes. He tried to fight back, but was outnumbered. Once, when a gang of toughs delivered a particularly savage beating, Ald went to the police to complain. I'm sorry, came the answer, but I cannot move in this matter except upon the oath of white witnesses. Because the only people willing to testify about the crime were black, and the courts would not allow them to introduce evidence, Ald had no legal recourse for the damage to his property. The laws regarding slavery sometimes even stymied the owners. Ald had a personal stake in the matter, of course. His slave's work in the shipyards was bringing him good money. Every payday, Douglas handed over his earnings. While Douglas preferred this work to the drudge labor of the countryside, it grated on him to give up his $9 each week to Hugh Ald. I contracted for it, worked for it, collected it, it was paid to me, and it was rightfully my own. And yet upon every returning Saturday night, this money, my own hard earnings, every cent of it, was demanded of me and taken from me by Master Hugh. He did not earn it. He had no hand in earning it. Why then should he have it? I owed him nothing. This practice of openly robbing me from week to week somehow made slavery even more unendurable than it had been on the farm with the daily prospect of flogging. At first he tried a bargain. He would rent out his own time and pay Ald $3 per week in addition to paying for his room, board, and working tools, and Ald would let him keep the rest. Ald agreed, of course, it meant more money in his pocket, but it gave Douglas hope. Any money he could save was money he could spend either buying his own freedom or making good an escape plan. But the arrangement collapsed when he was late coming home one weekend, and Ald flew into a rage at him for not getting permission first. That was the last straw. On September 3, 1838, Douglas, dressed in the uniform of a U.S. Navy sailor and carrying government papers smuggled to him on the Underground Railroad, boarded the Negro car on a train bound for Wilmington, Delaware. Approaching the Susquehanna River, the conductor came into the compartment collecting tickets. Douglas's heart pounded as he watched him approach, scrutinizing the documents carried by the black passengers. He held out his hand to Douglas, who struck a bold pose and turned over his sailor's pass. It was the moment of truth. The written description on the pass did not match Douglas, and the game would be up if the conductor read it too carefully. But the man only gave it a perfunctory glance and moved along. 
The danger was still not over, even when the train reached Wilmington, for the border states were rife with slave catchers and bounty hunters, and Douglas saw several acquaintances he was sure would recognize him and blow his cover. Nevertheless, Douglas managed to evade suspicion as he caught a boat from Delaware to Philadelphia and then a train to New York City. By the next morning, he was walking down Broadway. He was awestruck by the prosperity of the metropolis. Having been taught that slavery was the basis of all wealth, he had assumed the North must be poor and could hardly believe the bustling industry about him. He, however, was penniless. I was indeed free, free from slavery, but free from food and shelter as well. A stranger put him in touch with local members of the Underground Railroad. Given his shipbuilding skills, they decided the best place for him to go was New Bedford, Massachusetts, the capital of the whaling industry. There he could earn a living, not just for himself, but for his new wife, Anna Murray, a free black woman he had courted in Baltimore and who now joined him in New York. After a quick wedding, they moved on to New Bedford, where they were taken in by a black abolitionist named Nathan Johnson. At Johnson's suggestion, the couple adopted the surname Douglas, borrowing it from a heroic character, Black James Douglas, fighter for Scottish independence, in Walter Scott's immensely popular book-length poem Lady of the Lake. The new name would help Douglas evade slave catchers who might try to snatch him back to his owner in Maryland. But it was also a symbolic moment. Choosing his own name was one more step in the process of self-determination that represented true liberation from slavery. Adopting a new name, Booker T. Washington explained, was one of the first signs of freedom for those who escaped bondage. The escaped slave William Wells Brown explained that he chose to call himself William instead of Sandford, the name that had been forced upon me, because he detested the idea of being known on his master's terms. While some freedmen used their master's surnames when they obtained freedom, Brown wrote that he would rather have adopted the name Friday and been known as the servant of some Robinson Crusoe than to have taken his name. New Bedford was alive with railroads, factories, mills, and foundries, and Douglas was impressed by the difference between it and the relative indolence of Baltimore. Thrifty Yankees substituted machinery and animal labor for human drudgery. No time was wasted. Workmen were efficient and focused. Everybody seemed in earnest. The same contrast struck the French traveler Alexis de Tocqueville, whose Democracy in America was being published at exactly this time. Sailing down the river between the free state of Ohio and the slave state of Kentucky, Tocqueville was impressed by the contrast between the different cultures of North and South. On the slavery side, it seemed as if society has gone to sleep. Whites associated manual labor with slavery and scorned industry. Instead, they aspired to a life of idle ease. In free Ohio, by contrast, one will never see a man of leisure. There, citizens saw material well-being as the main object of their existence, and the opportunity for profit and self-improvement encouraged hard work and commerce. This contrast was the clearest possible illustration, Tocqueville concluded, that slavery not only prevents the white men from making their fortunes, but even diverts them from wishing to do so. 
Douglas echoed these ideas in one of his most famous compositions, the lecture Self-Made Men, which he wrote in the 1850s and delivered dozens of times to audiences all over North America. Freedom and social mobility, he argued, depended fundamentally on a culture that acknowledged the respectability of labor, that expected each person to provide for himself and rewarded honest toil rather than birth and privilege. The industrial spirit and dynamism of the North was thus an active manifestation of the principle of equality, the principle that formed the basis, or ought to form the basis, of American values. Foreigners often remarked that Americans were in a constant state of agitation and excitement like the troubled sea, but that was just a testament to the national creed of equal freedom and self-reliance. Because it liberated individuals to make their own choices, American society was more animated and alive than the static and class-oriented European nations. Like the sea, we are constantly rising above and returning to the common level. This quality of American culture would become the fundamental link between Douglass's individualism and his patriotism. The U.S. Constitution was worthy of respect because its institutions regarded each individual as worthy of respect, or would if its principles were faithfully implemented. Immediately upon escaping from slavery, Douglas found that his new responsibilities filled him with a sensation of pride that he had never experienced before. Knowing he could reap the rewards of his own toil placed me in a state of independence, he wrote, and his first day of freely chosen labor seemed to him the real starting point of something like a new existence. The fifth day after my arrival, I put on the clothes of a common laborer and went upon the wharves in search of work. On my way down Union Street, I saw a large pile of coal in front of the house of Reverend Ephraim Peabody, the Unitarian minister. I went to the kitchen door and asked the privilege of bringing in and putting away this coal. What will you charge? said the lady. I will leave that to you, madam. You may put it away, she said. I was not long in accomplishing the job when the dear lady put into my hand two silver half-dollars. To understand the emotion which swelled my heart as I clasped this money, realizing that I had no master who could take it from me, that it was mine, that my hands were my own, and could earn more of the precious coin, one must have been in some sense himself a slave. I was not only a freeman, but a free working man, and no master Hugh stood ready at the end of the week to seize my hard earnings. Thus, Douglas viewed economic freedom as more than an incentive. It was the source and symbol of personal liberation. He made this idea explicit in a later speech. What is freedom? It is the right to choose one's own employment. Certainly it means that if it means anything. And when any individual or combination of individuals undertakes to decide for any man when he shall work, where he shall work, at what he shall work, and for what he shall work, he or they practically reduce him to slavery. He is a slave. Douglas's feeling of pride at choosing his own employment 
was soured somewhat when white laborers on the wharves threatened to quit if the boss hired a black man. But, undeterred, he worked at a variety of odd jobs instead, sawing wood, digging cellars, unloading ships, moving barrels of whale oil, and helping cast brass at a foundry. My hands, he wrote, were at long last furnished with something like a leather coating. As he labored, he also strove to improve his mind. He would nail a copy of William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator next to where he stood at the blacksmith's bellows and read it as he pumped the handles. He was free at last to take charge of his own life, as well as to provide for Anna and for their children, Rosetta, born in June 1839, and Lewis, born 16 months later. Three others would follow, Frederick Jr. in 1842, Charles in 1844, and Annie in 1848. In Self-Made Men, Douglas celebrated the great thinkers and inventors who are not brought up but are obliged to come up, not only without the voluntary assistance or friendly cooperation of society, but often in open and derisive defiance of all the efforts of society and the tendency of circumstances to repress, retard, and keep them down. The speech, in no small degree, reflected how Douglas liked to think of himself. Self-made men, he wrote, are in a peculiar sense indebted to themselves for themselves. If they have ascended high, they have built their own ladder. <laughs>